But today, let me tell you a story as we start. Um, many years ago, because I'm old now, um, we had a, a lady stay with us for a summer at, at our house. This was when I was at home with mom and dad. Um, I was probably late, maybe mid-teens. Um, and this lady stayed with us. Well, well one morning... She snuck into my room, and while she thought I was asleep, I was acting, she painted my fingernails as a prank. My hand was hanging off the bed, and she painted my fingernails. And I, and I knew what she was doing. I was aware of it. I didn't spoil her surprise or jump up and scare her or anything like that. But she was doing it to be mischievous. So what did I do? I got up. After she left, and I went into the bathroom, and I took fingernail polish remover, and I cleaned my fingernails off, and I went downstairs, and she's like, how you doing? I'm like, I'm fine, how are you? She's like, how you feeling this morning? I'm like, I'm, I'm feeling fine, how are you feeling? And I knew what she was after here, but I'm, she's like, did you see your fingernails? I'm like, well, yeah. She's like, what do you think? I'm like, Fingernails. She's very surprised. She's like, I painted your fingernails this morning. I'm like, you did what? You may have got the wrong ability. I'm like, what? what? Like, I, there's nothing. She's like, I painted your fingernails this morning. I'm like, wow. Was it invisible ink? I don't, you know, I don't know what you did there. But anyway, then I told her what happened and all that kind of stuff. But she was doing it to try to get my goat, and very rarely. Does somebody get my goat? <laughs> so, as y'all plot and scheme, remember, very rarely does somebody get Jason Moore's goat. Actually, I've never had a goat. But anyway. Now, okay, I don't know if it was just that morning or whatever, but I mean, I just what she was doing just didn't bother me. It wasn't like I was mad and I was going to react and come down, why is somebody doing what you You know, it's just not my... Not who I am, not how I am. But, uh, but her mischief was met with a reaction. And then, then we laughed about it. Everything was fine. But have you ever been the victim of something? That somebody was trying to be mischievous and cause you trouble and it really, really got your goat? I have a question. Okay, question. Why did you have fingernail polish removed? Well, I live with, I've got a mother and I've got a sister. And I, I did not, but they did, so I knew where to find it. I guess that's a valid question, but yeah, I grew up with women in the house. So. That did not get my goat at all. I actually, I kind of like the smell of acetone, which may explain why I am the way I am. <laughs> um, don't, don't smell acetone, kids. Don't do it. Okay, you got a sharpie I can use. Anyway, um, have you ever been the victim of somebody's mischief that really got you, really made you mad, and you reacted in a poor way? Well, yeah, me too. Um, what we're going to see this morning, and I think this is really interesting, is we're going to see some secret mischief. Toward God. Now think about that for a second. Some secret mischief. Somebody's going to try to get God's goat. 
How do you think he responds? And I would ask you this as we start. How do you think we should respond? Because that is what we're really after this morning. So we are in Matthew 13. And I I don't know if I've conveyed this or not, but this is just one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I mean, this is up there with me with Romans 8. This is up there with Revelation 2 and 3. This is up there with Genesis 37 through 50. And these great high mountain peaks of Scripture. To me, this is just... And I know you're probably going, I'm not seeing it yet. It's a big picture thing, okay? And I don't know if if you'll see this great movement of God in chapter 13 this morning either. But this is the Word of God and we're building a case. And, And Jesus is doing something very deliberate and purposeful here. So I just love this, this, this chapter, including the passage we're going to read this morning. So what we're going to read this morning is Matthew 13, 24 to 30, and 36 to 43. We've got another one of these parables that Jesus explains. So we're going to read the parable and the explanation this morning. So if you would please stand as we read the Bible out loud, publicly, together. And I would ask you... Prepare your heart. You know, we talk about that with the table, and we should. That's right. But prepare your heart to receive the Word of God. Not not me, not Jason, but these are the very words of God. So receive them this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping... His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's pray. God, we do ask this morning that each of us individually and all of us corporately would prepare the soil of our hearts to receive this seed that it might bring forth fruit in our lives, some 100, some 60, some 30, all for your glory, for the good of others and for our own good as well. Holy Spirit, please speak and teach and help us to do what needs to be done as a result of it. By your power, for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So we'll just jump in here at verse 24. 
He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So this is the next parable, the second parable, in the progression of the seven parables that will be laid out for us here in Matthew 13. And just as an aside, I'd really encourage you, throughout the week, read Matthew 13. It's probably going to take you five minutes. Take five minutes and read Matthew 13 as much as you can. Because these parables, I mean, obviously can be self-contained. We're going to teach this parable this morning as one unit. But the big picture is much more important. The forest is more important than the trees here. So I would encourage you, uh, sit down with your, maybe at the dinner table, breakfast table. I don't know where you sit down with your family. And just read it out loud. And, and make that a, a regular practice while we're in Matthew 13, which will probably be at least two or three more weeks. Um, maybe more. But yeah, look at the big picture too. So this is the second parable in the progression of seven that we'll see in Matthew 13. So I, we need to make sure we recount what we've already seen to this point and make sure that we can place this parable and its explanation in the proper place in the narrative. So we saw at the beginning of Matthew 13, almost said Genesis 13, I don't know where that was coming from. Uh, Jesus left the house he had been in and he went out and sat beside the sea. And as the crowds gathered around him, he got into a boat and sat down in the boat to teach from there. And it would seem that he did that to get away from the crush of the crowd and maybe to be heard better. You know, wind's coming off the lake and it's blowing behind him and carrying his voice. Either way, he's sitting down in a boat while the crowd's on the shore listening to what he has to say. But as he starts speaking, he's teaching in parables. Beginning with the one we looked at last week, which described how a sower sowed seeds. Some fell on the path, some fell on stony ground, some on thorns, thorny ground, and some on good soil. And the seed on the good soil produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixteen, some thirty. And then he concluded that parable with the statement, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then, after he concluded that parable... After the call to hear, verse 10 in Matthew 13 says that his disciples came to him and asked him why he was speaking to the crowds in parables. Now, the way we've done this so far, we took that first different set of section, uh, different set of passages in Matthew 13 that explained that Jesus was speaking in parables and why he was speaking in parables. We took that first so we would have that. But actually, that happened after Jesus spoke that first parable. And so they come to him, and I just I think it's kind of like this huddle thing around the boat is the way I see it. Why, why are you speaking in parables? And he tells them, well, this is what's going on. I'm, I'm, I'm hiding truth from some people. I'm revealing truth to other people. I speak to parables so that they might hear but not hear, see but not comprehend, and that they, they won't receive the truth about the kingdom of heaven. Um, it's a sort of judgment to conceal the secrets of the kingdom from some while revealing those secrets to others. And Jesus then says that what he's doing is to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy from Isaiah 6 where Isaiah was told that some would never get it and that not getting it was God's design for those whose hearts had grown dull lest they actually turn and seek God rightly. And Jesus then explained that the disciples were blessed because they had seeing eyes and hearing ears and were seeing and hearing things that God's people had long sought to see and hear. And then starting in verse 18, which 
what we saw last week alongside the parable, Jesus explained exactly what he meant in that parable of the soils, showing that the condition of men's hearts would determine whether or not the seed of the kingdom of the heavens would take root and produce fruit in their lives or not. So, again, we kind of took it and cut it into pieces and threw it up in the air, but we had to in order to see the context of what was going on. So, today, we come to verse 24, which is what we just read. And so, get this flow, okay? All being said, Jesus is in the boat teaching in parables. He tells the first parable. The disciples ask Him why He's teaching in parables. He tells them why, and He explains the first parable to them Then he begins teaching again in parables, it seems, to everybody again. So we'll hear this parable this week, then two more next week. They'll kind of be one unit. And those two next week, along with the first one from last week and the second one this week, seem to be addressed to the crowds, with the first and second one explained to the disciples. The third and fourth one will not be explained to the disciples. So you're going, what? Right? So what's all this mean? Clear as mud, right? Well, stick around. Because I think we'll see um, more about these specifics and how it works out today as we work through our passage today. So again, verse 24. He put another parable before them. This was after the first one and the explanation of the first one. And then he's talking to everybody again. Okay, He puts this second parable out. Um, And he starts speaking and he says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So this is another parable. And Jesus starts it with saying that the kingdom of heaven, which we saw when we talked about, I guess that was two weeks ago, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of the heavens, is the main theme of this whole chapter. And that's what Jesus is talking about. The kingdom of heaven is the main topic. And Jesus says this kingdom may be compared to a man who did what? Who sowed good seed in his field. Now remember, parable means to place beside two things, beside each other, to compare them and say this is like this. And the comparison is to help understand better or in some cases to not understand at all. So the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Now that feels very much like what we saw last week, right? Right? The four soils and the guy sowing seed, he's broadcasting the seed. Sower, seed, field. So they're probably going, okay, is this different? Well, it is. Go to verse 25. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So Jesus had been clear in verse 24 that what was sown in this man's field was good seed. We saw that last week. That was one of our application points, is that the seed is perfect. The Word of God is able to revive the soul. It's perfect. So Jesus was clear to say in this parable as well that this was good seed. He did what he intended to do, and it would seem that he did it well. But this man who owns this field has an enemy. So while this man and his men who would work the fields for him while they're sleeping, while him and his workers are sleeping, the man's enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So now get that picture. These workers were probably hired to sow the field, tend it, bring the crop to maturity, and then they would reap it and bring the produce or its profits to the man who owned the field. 
And while these workers were sleeping, the bad guy creeps in. Now don't jump on the workers. They're not lazy. Anybody sleep last night? Okay. Yeah, I mean, they were doing what, what, what normal people do. It wasn't like they fell asleep on the job. They fell asleep at night. And while they were asleep, at night, after their work was done, while they slept, the text says, His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So this was like a covert operation, like that lady painting my fingernails, right? Sneaky. A sneaky snake kind of deal. He kind of slithered in, slithered out. Now the word for enemy here is ekthros, and it means foe. It means odious, hateful one. One who is hostile, hating, and opposing someone. And it's actually very pointed. It means a certain enemy, the one enemy. This man had that one enemy, and it's that enemy that does what? He sneaks into the field of the guy that he hates. And he sows what the ESV says is weeds all over the wheat field. You may have heard that word weed translated as tares, T-A-R-E-S before. Um, Darnels, D-A-R-N-E-L-S. Which is a kind of wheat-like plant, but the, the grain heads are black. And again, as is the Lord's pattern, the choice of terms here is not accidental. And it's easily understood by his hearers. In this agricultural society, they would be very familiar with both wheat and tares and how similar they are in appearance, but how different they really are in substance. Wheat was the staple of their diet. And nothing would be worse than to find in your wheat field a bunch of tares. The tare was almost indistinguishable from the wheat to the eye, but it was literally poisonous. If ingested, tares could lead to convulsions and even death. Only the fowls, chickens, turkeys and such could harmlessly ingest the black kerneled tares. And so that's what the enemy sows in the man's field while his men were sleeping. And here's the thing, they couldn't tell until the grain head popped out. The plant looked exactly the same. So as it's growing there in its early stages, everybody's like, all right, we've got a good crop going, everything's good. And all of a sudden they start to see these black grain heads on top of these plants. And they're like, oh no. Oh no. That's not wheat. Well, that's wheat, but that's not. And that's not. And that is nothing. And there's tares all in this wheat. And the enemy just goes away. In verse 26. So when the plants came up and bore grain... Then the weeds appeared also. Now this. Like we saw in the last verse, these tares would be indistinguishable until the grain had appeared. So when the plants came up and bore grain, which would have been quite a while, right? It's not like it just dropped some seeds in the ground the next day. You're like, oh no, tares. You're talking a few months up the road. The plant's growing, and all of a sudden you're like, oh no, we got, we got, we got problems. Nurturing, tending, fertilizing, helping all these plants grow as much as they can grow. And then, pop, black grain heads. And the wheat field is co-mingled with tares. No way to tell until the plants come up and bear grain. Again, it's the fruit. We talked about that last week. It's the fruit, the grain that shows weeds to be weeds and wheat to be wheat. Again, very much... Like we saw last week. The sower was after fruit, was after produce, was after grain. Same here, 
But this man got some bad produce, not what he intended, not the intended wheat. But it took a while to see that. So how do you think this goes over? Verse 27. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did did you not sow good seed in your field? Of course, they were the ones who had sown it. How then does it have weeds? So these workers working this field for this man, his servants come to him and ask, Did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Didn't you plant wheat seeds? Did we, didn't you give us wheat seeds to plant? And it really kind of sounds like a rhetorical question to me. It's like they're incredulous. They knew what they had sown. And they knew the quality of the seed. So they're marveling that this has happened. How then does it have weeds? How? And he tells them. Verse 28. He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? The man knows that an enemy, his enemy, that one enemy, that odious, hateful enemy, had done this. He's not surprised. This is the kind of thing that happened in those times. Uh, extensive writing, extensive research. Uh, MacArthur, Sproul, other, I mean commentators across the board said in their material from this passage that there were actually Roman laws against this very practice. Because people would do this. Hateful, mean people would sneak into their enemy's field and sow tares among their wheat. Devilish is really a backhanded, jerky thing to do, like paint somebody's fingernails while they're asleep or something. There are no laws against that, but there were laws against this. In an agricultural uh, society, nothing hurt as bad as getting hit in the crops. Oh, he hit me in the crops! Yeah, that slipped up. And Jesus, Jesus hears would be very familiar with this notorious practice. I could just see him going, ooh, I hate it when people do that. Ooh, that's awful. They would be familiar with it. And the man in the parable knows that this is exactly the type of thing that his enemy would try to do to try to hurt him. The servants were alarmed and asked the man if they should go and gather the tares out of the field. Oh no, there's tares. We need to get them out of there. We need to get rid of them, right? Seems like the right idea, but verse 29. But he, the man, said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. This man is no dummy. Okay? He says if you uproot the weeds, the tares... You could very easily also pull up the wheat. And what's he after? He's after wheat. Their root systems were now intertwined, interconnected, irreversibly so. His enemy would be aware of this too and probably hope that the man would uproot everything and just start over again. But this man is no amateur. This isn't his first encounter with weeds or enemies. So the field owner says... Verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. Now listen to that. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now keep in mind what we're talking about here, and we'll get there in the explanation. The field owner says to let the wheat and the tares grow together until the harvest. The period of time where the wheat and the tares grow together is from planting until the harvest. Note that. And then the owner says at harvest time, 
He will tell the reapers to do two things. First, gather the weeds and bind them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat into his barn. Now can you imagine the meticulous work that would be? Wheat and tares all gathered together and you're out there separating grain heads? Plants that have different grain heads? But that's what they're going to do. Gather the weeds first, bind the bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat into the barn, into his barn. So grow on, wheat and weeds, both of you. But when the harvest time comes, the weeds will be gathered together in bundles to be burned. They're good for nothing. They are the fruit of the man's enemy, meant to harm him. But in the end, they just get burned. And the wheat, the wheat that was originally planted and meant for the field's owner's good, and his reward, that wheat, it will also be gathered and it will be put where he originally intended it to go, in his barn. So the enemy looks like he's succeeding until the harvest comes. I need you to hear that. The enemy looks like he's succeeding until the harvest comes. And then the enemy's activity proves to be wasted time for him, having not harmed the wheat at all. And the field owner is pleased after making these wise decisions and is shown to be wise to those who are in his service. Now, what's all this mean? Well, Jesus tells us, starting in verse 36. So again, keep this in mind. Well, we'll get there. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. Into the house. And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Now to be clear, this explanation is not directly after the parable. Jesus tells the parable, then he tells two more, which I said we'll look at next week. Then as verse 36 begins, he left the crowds and went into the house. Now what house? I don't know. Probably the same one he came out of at the beginning of the chapter would be my guess. A lot of people think that was Peter's house there in Capernaum, which kind of served as their home base. Maybe, I, I don't know. He came out of a house. He taught four parables. He went back in the house. Okay? Don't want to get too caught up in that. But in, in any case, Jesus leaves the crowds after teaching the four parables, two of which we've seen, and then he goes into the house. And now watch this. And his disciples came to him. And they want something specific. Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Now, first and foremost, notice their desire to be taught. Jesus had already explained one parable. And after he told three more, they come in the house and they're like, Hey, 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 you said he who has ears to hear, let him hear. We need you to explain to us what that parable about the weeds is all about. Talk to us. Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. I love their desire to be taught and I love the fact that they go to Jesus to be taught because they knew that he was the one who could do it. Their awareness that Jesus, that only Jesus could really tell them what this parable meant. He had already explained the parable of the soils to them, and now they went to him to explain the parable of the weeds of the field, which is what they titled it. Um, The word explain, when they say explain this parable, is their way of asking Jesus to make it clear or plain, to unfold it for them. John Piper would say to unpack it for them. Why this parable particularly? Again, because there's two more after this. I, I don't know. Why don't they ask him to explain the other two? I I don't know. Uh, Maybe they figured, 
Right? If they knew what this one meant, they could understand the others as well. We saw that last week. Jesus says in Mark, if you don't understand this one, how will you understand all the parables? But anyway, they ask about this one. And we may explore that further next week as we look at the next two. But for now, they ask Jesus specifically to explain this parable, which he does. Verses 37 to 39. He answered, Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So what's Jesus give them there? Think a couple weeks ago. He gives them a key to the map, right? We talked about that when we talked about the kingdom. He's given them a key. You want to know what this parable means? This means this, this means this. Look at the key. Blank means blank, blank means blank. And so he gives them the key to the parable. He says, this is this, this is this. Who is the one who sowed the good seed? The Son of Man. The Jesus, right. And, and the Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself. That's what he calls himself. All the time, not, not every time he mentions himself, but so many times when he refers to himself, he's, he calls himself the Son of Man, which refers back to Daniel and the vision, Ancient of Days, and he, he gave his kingdom over to one like a Son of Man. Jesus says he is the owner of the field. He says that he is the man who sowed good seed in his field. And, and the field is what? The field is the world. His world. Now there's quite a statement, don't you think? Jesus just proclaimed that He is the owner of the world. In case they were wondering who He really was, He's like, I own the world. He owns everything He made. He, he does own everything He made, including this little dust speck that's flying through this gigantic universe that we call the world. He's got the whole world in His hands. And God's like, Pfft. Yeah, <laughs> you got a speck of dust on your head. You know, big deal. So Jesus is the field owner. The field is the world, his world. And now look at this. What's the seed? In the four soils parable last week, the seed was the word of the kingdom. But here, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. Now note that this is important. While Jesus was here on earth, He sowed the seed. And the seed that He sowed, which was reflected in last week's parable, was the word of the kingdom. And then, He went from planting words to planting people. To planting sons. S-O-Ns. The kingdom of heaven would move from just words from one man... Just news about a kingdom from the king himself. And that kingdom, that that word, would move into the lives of people who would themselves, listen, who would themselves be God's planting. God's working. God's method to get fruit in his world. So he's gone from his own words to planting his people. Jesus is foreshadowing here that His words would lead to men's lives being changed and that that those men, His men, would be planted in the world in order to bring about the fruit that He desires. The good seed 
is the sons of the kingdom. And I've wrestled with that all week. The good seed is the sons. I'm like, that doesn't feel right, but it's the seed that it goes to the antecedent. <laughs> the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And then this, the weeds, now get this, the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Hmm. Okay. Now let's pause for a moment here. Put this explanation back in line with the parable. An enemy comes into the owner's field and sows bad seed and then goes away. God plants His people in the world foreseeing that He would receive fruit from them. The devil sees this and plants his own people in that same field, that same world, to try to disrupt or uproot the good seed, which is the sons of God. But God says, let them grow together. Because I don't want to harm my crop. I don't want to uproot my children out of my field, which is the world. And so... He waits for the harvest, which is the end of the age, he says, the end of time, the end of that time of the in-between kingdom, in-between Jesus' first and second comings. And at that time, at the end of that time, he sends reapers, who he says are angels, to separate the weeds from the wheat. This is bizarre, y'all. Then verses 40 to 42. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, Jesus clearly says that He will send His angels, again, angels are His too, to gather out of His kingdom, the kingdom of the heavens, the world where He put His people to be active in the kingdom of the heavens, He's going to remove out of that world, out of that field, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And, and where did those come from? They came from the enemy. And Jesus says, I'm going to send my reapers, my angels, and they're going to take all the things that cause sin and all lawbreakers out of my kingdom. And they'll be thrown into what Jesus calls the fiery furnace to be burned with fire at the end of the age. So what's that? Hell. We don't need the key to explain that to us, right? The fiery furnace is hell. All the sons of the evil one will be cast into hell to be burned with fire. And in that place, Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now we hear that a lot, but what's it mean? In that place, in that fiery furnace, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There will be people who are weeping and gnashing their teeth. Now what would weeping infer? Who weeps? Sad people? Hurting people? Sadness and pain bring weeping? Sometimes, you ever get mad and cry? There was one kid we grew up with and we picked on him all the time. Of course, I was like two foot four who was out to pick on anybody. But, but we would pick on him all the time and he'd, he'd laugh it off and he'd slough it off. And I remember one time he got so mad he started crying and I thought he was going to kill us all. But I was faster than him, so I ran away. Some people get so mad they start crying and when they get so mad they start crying, you better get out of the way. So there's weeping in this fiery furnace where these people are. 
There's pain and there's sadness and there's anger and there's gnashing of teeth. And who gnashes their teeth together? My wife when she's mad at the kids, right? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Me when I get mad. Okay. Gnashing of teeth seems to infer anger. <sighs> the gritting, grinding of your teeth together. People in pain gnash their teeth. And angry people gnash their teeth together, grind their teeth together. In this place, there are those being burned like weeds in a furnace who are sad, hurting, and angry. They're in pain, they're sad, and they're angry. What are they angry about? They're angry at their enemy who put them here. You can just see them shaking their fist. You put me here. God's enemies, the weeds in God's field, are not passively walking around in the fire like Daniel's three friends did. No, they're full of anguish and they're full of rage because of their punishment. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing. And once the weeds are gone, verse 43, our last verse today. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Once the weeds are gone, Jesus said all causes of sin. After all that's gone, God's seed, God's children, the righteous, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. What's that mean? It means they will be free from impediment. They will be radiant in glory, shining like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Anybody look forward to that? Brightly shining like the sun in its fullness, bringing light and glory to the person of God for His praise. They will be doing what they were created for, unhindered, unfettered, and unbridled. Finally free to do what they were always meant to do. And like he has in the past, Jesus calls for those who have ears to hear what he's saying to hear. Pay attention. Make sure you're picking up what I'm laying down, Jesus is saying. And the question is, are we? Do we hear what he's saying? Do we understand what it means for us? Well, that takes us to what? Application. Three C's today. Condemnation, conflict, and conduct. Condemnation, conflict, and conduct. First condemnation, first application point. Listen to me. God will throw people into the fiery furnace. God will send people to hell. Hell is a real place where real people will go. In today's passage, Jesus says that the tares, the weeds, will be thrown into the furnace to be burned. And in this place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew 13, 41-42. And my question is, how do we feel about that? Because this doctrine of hell causes many people to stumble. How could a good God... How could a loving God create anything or anyone in order to throw them into hell for eternity? If that's not problematic to you, you're not thinking. You're not engaging this doctrine. A 
lot of people stumble, cringe, recoil at this clearly stated doctrine of hell that we see here today and we see all, all kinds of other places in the Bible. And we don't have time today to establish a full biblical doctrine or theology of hell because we're in application and we've got just a few minutes left. But we have to see its reality. And my question is, how does the doctrine, the truth, that there is a hell where people will be punished forever, how does that affect you? How does that affect me? How should we respond to the truth of hell? In today's parable, it's almost like a victory. Because God sends His enemies into hell. The field owner in the parable cast the weeds that were sown in his field into the furnace, which was a moment of resolution. I show up downstairs, I don't have to paint fingernails. <laughs> and I mean, it kind of feels like that. An enemy meant harm, and I overcame what the enemy meant for harm, and I sent what he meant for harm into the fiery furnace. That's the feel in this parable today. Right? So should we celebrate and slap high fives because people get thrown into hell? Feels a little bit morbid to me. So then should we shake our fist at God and say, you're mean. You're unjust. Why would you do something like this? Why would you make a place like hell? Of course not. We shouldn't do that. So then what? I think we have to have a very healthy view of hell. Listen to me. Where we both worship God for the justice displayed through hell and weep over the fact that people will go to hell. Worship God for justice and weep that there are people that you know. There are people in your family. There are people in your community. There are people at your workplaces who will spend eternity in hell. Weeping and gnashing their teeth. The purpose of hell is the purpose of all things, and that's to glorify God. And we should glorify God for His perfect plan, which includes punishing the sins of those who are unredeemed in hell eternally. They are the enemies of God. And they deserve to be punished in hell, and so do we. Nobody is morally neutral. Everybody's sins have to be punished because God is holy. And He will either punish them in hell eternally or He will see them as punished in the sacrificial work of Christ. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood poured out for the remission of sins. Your sins. So glorify God, worship God for His perfect justice and weep over the fact that there will be those who do spend eternity in hell. We should weep and labor and pray and preach the gospel to try to reach as many people as possible in hopes of people not going to hell. You say, that's not my job. Yes, it is. It is your job to preach the gospel to those who may end up in hell. And it's God's job to sort that out. 
praise God for hell. And pray and work to keep people out of there. Do both. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees imploring them to stay. We were confronted this weekend. Amanda and I went to a, a marriage retreat. And the guy said, when was the last time you hurt over the thought that somebody was going to hell? When was the last time you wept because somebody you knew, loved, or even didn't know may end up in hell? When was the last time it affected you so much that you couldn't sleep? And I had to answer, never. Because I don't have a right perception of hell. And the fact that people will spend eternity there. And I think Jesus would call us today through this parable to consider it. Condemnation. Second application point. Conflict. What we see in the parable today clearly is that God sows His seed, His people in His field. And what does the enemy do? Well, shoot. I've lost. No. The enemy responds, reacts to what God has done. God is the initiator. God is the generator. And Satan responds and reacts to what God does. Not vice versa. God is sovereign. Before there was time, counted the hairs on my head. Before there was time, there was a plan for me to be planted in his field. And the enemy sees that and reacts to it. We are in the midst of a cosmic conflict. Satan is not going to take this church age thing, this kingdom of heaven thing, just lying down. He knows his time is brief, Revelation 12 says, but he does know that he does have some time. And so what's he going to do? He's going to try to wreak havoc in God's field. What's that mean for you? What's that mean for us? We have to see this activity. And we have to, what? We have to be wheat. Right? I don't bind the enemy. God's going to do that at the harvest. I'm wheat. I'm not going to go, hey dude, you shouldn't be in this field. Go and get. Get off God's property. I'm just like, oh, this, oh. What are you going to do, God? We saw last week, 1 Corinthians 3 9. I think I've got that in here. I think. Yeah, yeah. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. So here we are in the field and we see the activity of the enemy. And that's the first thing we've got to do in this conflict. We've got to see the activity of the enemy and recognize that he's active. Do you need any kind of discernment to look out in the world? Let me ask you this better. Do you need any discernment to look inside your heart and see that the enemy is active? It's pretty obvious, right? 
So in this conflict that we're talking about, we've got to recognize that the enemy is active, but we are what? We're God's field. We're the sons, the good seed that was sown in this field. That's who we are. That's our place. And then Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So then what do we do? We go to God and we pray and we labor and we toil, even as we eat, to see, to know, and to try to counteract as much as we can in the power of God these cosmic forces of evil that are active in our world and in our lives. There is a conflict going on that you are in the midst of. Recognize that. And wrestle not with flesh and blood. We'll get to that. That's the last point. But wrestle! Wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, let me ask you again. We were asked, when's the last time you were hurt over somebody going to hell? When was the last time you purposefully wrestled with the cosmic forces of evil in your life? When was the last time you engaged in combat against demons, against the devil? You said, well, you said it wasn't our job to bind them. It's not. But I recognize his activity and I work to counteract it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Not my power, not what I know, not what I can do, but in the very power of God wrestling with the cosmic forces of evil in these high heavenly places. He's like, that sounds a little charismatic. Sounds awfully biblical to me. You are in a conflict. Live like it. Fight like it. Pray like it. And here's the deal. We read the end of the story, right? Are you going to lose? Is God going to lose? Does that mean the devil is just going to lay down and say, oh, well, I'm not going to win? No, he knows his time is brief. And so he tries to do as much as he can do. Fight him. And if you want to know how to fight him, the rest of Ephesians 6 tells us how to fight him. We put on the full armor of God. We don't have time to go there this morning. But I encourage you to go there if you want to know what this wrestling looks like, what this fighting looks like, what this conflict looks like. No, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we do wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Don't live like that's not true. Because it is. Condemnation, conflict, and finally conduct. So here's my main last question. What is the wheat's relationship with the tares? What is our relationship with the sons of the evil one? How do we relate to them? We don't wrestle against them. Here's what we've got to do. Now check this out. We share life with them. We grow together with them. This is the statement that really just blew my hair back. Listen, we share roots with them. 
God chose in His sovereignty, in His wisdom, to not uproot the weeds. God could have just taken out the activity of the evil one and said, eh, just get them out of here. Here's the deal. We can benefit from them. They can benefit from us. We're growing together. We're sharing the same resources. And we're growing right there beside them together. They are the sons of the evil one and it's not them that we're wrestling against. We're sharing life with them. We grow with them. We produce our produce. They produce their produce. And then we die and God separates it all out. Or Jesus comes back and sorts it all out. How are you living with your neighbor? Got several scriptures to read and we'll be done. John 17, 6-19. Jesus tells us exactly what this looks like. He says in, in this high priestly prayer, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now he's talking about his disciples specifically here. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. These are the sons of the kingdom that are sown in the field of the world. For I've given them the words that you gave me and they've received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world. See the dichotomy there? But for those whom you have given me for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them and I'm no longer in the world. But they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you've given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you sent me into this world, so I have sent, as you have sent me into this world, I have sent them into the world. He has sent us into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus doesn't say leave the world. He says, I'm sending you into the world to be wheat. And you need to be the weediest wheat you can be. Not contaminated by those who are growing around you, but actually separated from them. Sanctified. Sanctify them in what? In the truth. Your word is truth, he said in 1717. So we are to be sanctified in the midst of the world, which means that we are so abandoned to the things of the Word of God that the world sees it and says, you have lost your mind. Yes, I have. Praise God I lost my mind a long time ago. And now I've got His mind. We're to be sanctified, set apart, waiting for the harvest, and we conduct ourselves toward outsiders. How? Philippians 2, 12-18 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You are His field. Do all things, now, <laughs> do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let's stop there a second. I'm going to read the rest of this passage. Can you imagine how different you would look if you walked around and didn't grumble and dispute? How wheat-ish you would look if you'd stop your grumbling and disputing? That's how the world operates. And that's not how we are to operate. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, we're walking around not grumbling or disputing. We're blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of that crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. There's the Bible again. So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We should be the gladdest, rejoicingest people the world has ever seen. My heavens, shut your mouth on Facebook. Stop it. That's what they do. Quit trying to win the world over Facebook. Political arguments and things of the world. That's what they do. Not us. We praise and we glorify God. We rejoice and are glad. We do all things without grumbling and disputing. And we put our faith in the Word of God so that Paul wouldn't have labored in vain. So that the person who saw you come to Christ wouldn't labor in vain. So that we're not laboring in vain here. 1 Peter 2.12. We're almost done. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil doers, I'm going to coin that phrase. Let's start this verse over. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds and what glorify God on the day of visitation. Matthew five fourteen through sixteen. You are the light. Of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, in the same way, church, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's how we conduct ourselves in the midst of the world. People will lie to you. People will cheat and swindle you. People will be dishonest with you. People will malign you. People will speak all manner of evil against you on account of His name. And Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. For great is your reward in the kingdom of the heavens. Let the world be the world. And let's be the most God-honoring, Christ-exalting people that this world has ever seen. The weediest wheat that's ever been weeded. Weeded. Don't come down the stairs stomping saying, Why'd you paint my nails? You did what? Don't let the world get your goat. The devil does not win, the world does not win. And we wrestle not against the people of this world. We wrestle against the devil who was sowing these seeds. And here's the Kemper. Oh, there's a Kemper too. 
except for the grace of God, you're a tear. Except for the grace of God, we're all tares. And we should all be burned in the fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing. But God, because of the great love with which He has loved us, sent Christ to die for our sins. And that's the gospel we proclaim to the world. Not you're mean, you're evil. I don't like you. You're not my favorite person. You don't have to be your favorite person. But preach the gospel. The gospel that saved you. Proclaim the right, just condemnation of God against sinners in a fiery hell. Engage the conflict that you are in the midst of, whether you want to be or not, against the spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly places and conduct yourselves among men in such a way that you are pleading them to not go to hell. That's what God's planting, God's seed does. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being faithful. Thank You for Your perfect Word. And I do pray, God, that we would see the reality of hell. We would wrestle against the forces of evil that try to take people there. And that we would conduct ourselves among those in the world in such a way that they see You and are drawn to You. And they want to be in Your kingdom, shining in all the righteousness that You've given them. God, we don't have all the answers. We don't have it all figured out. And we're going to stumble and we're going to fall. And you bought us. You planted us. Help us to fulfill the role that you've placed us in this world for. Thank you, Jesus, for sowing good seed in your field. Now help us to bear fruit for your glory and the good of men. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Just stand and receive your benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good, that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You're dismissed. Stay neat with us if you can. Ha, ha, ha.